Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. Uh, this is Brother Jonathan. This is a re-recording of an older episode that I did some years ago now. The older series was a recording of a home Bible study on a condenser mic, and the sound quality was not as good. And even now, I have just moved into a new office building, and so still dealing with some of the reverb in the room, sound treatment, and things like that. So if you hear a small, slight reverb in the room, that's why. Um, but I am recording this again to kind of uh, clarify some things, adjust some things, and also just to have a better sound quality than before. So the issue that we are going to discuss is the issue of once saved, always saved, or eternal security. This is not specifically tailored towards the Calvinistic slant on this, which is perseverance of the saints, though at times some of the arguments, specifically in the next portion, are going to be addressing some arguments that would come up from that. Calvinism is more a system that is derived from their view of total depravity, such as R.C. Sproul specifically said, where God preordains all things, and therefore God can't know anything unless he ordains it, and is a whole other spiel than the average run-of-the-mill, once saved, always saved, or eternal security. And that is what we are going to be focusing on, the average Baptistic view of eternal security. So first things first, the only legitimate authority of Christian doctrine and practice is the Word of God itself. All teaching, therefore, should be able to be found clearly and directly stated in simplicity in Scripture. Anything that does not meet these standards is, by definition, unbiblical. It's not in the Bible. Amazingly, uh, there are many people who would say amen to that statement that are guilty of having beliefs that are not found in the Bible. There is a big difference between your doctrine being in the Bible and there being statements that you interpret as being your doctrine being in the Bible people have bias, and they have presuppositions. They have certain assumptions and beliefs that they bring to the text of Scripture. You need to learn to set them aside and look at the text and ask the simple question, what does it say? This is the easiest way to lead people out of false doctrines. Open the Bible, show them the text, and ask them, what does it say? Um, many Jehovah's Witnesses have come out of the Watchtower Society by just doing that. So keep that in mind as we go through this lesson and also the follow-up portion that we are going to have. And I do have kind of a lengthy introduction to this because I can't really assume that anybody really knows really how to approach the Scriptures. I really can't assume that today. The more I talk to people, whether they're in ministry or not, it's actually pretty sad. A lot of people don't even know the very basis of doctrine and these kind of things. So the first question we have to ask is, are there divisions in the New Testament? Some teach that there are certain passages in the New Testament that are not for Christians today. This belief is called dispensationalism. And while there are varying degrees of how much of the New Testament is divided up and, quote, not for us today, among dispensationalists, you know, you have the progressive dispensationalist and classic dispensationalist. I had originally been discipled as a classic dispensationalist, carried around 1912, 1917, a classic Schofield Bible, you know, raise your fist, woo. Um, but among dispensationalists, nevertheless, a consistent 
dispensationalists, does this, quote, rightly dividing the word of truth, as they claim. You know, there's you got to divide it, right? Notwithstanding the fact that this was not a Christian teaching or practice until John Darby in the 1830s. That's objectively true. If you want a deep dive on dispensationalism, see the episode that we just did on the topic just a few weeks ago under the title, The Era of Dispensational Premillennialism. And I have lots of scholars like Charles Ryrie, who literally wrote the book on progressive dispensationalism. They admit that they know the early Christians did not teach this. They did not do this. But most people are taught it, that is dispensationalism, directly or indirectly today from their pastor or teacher or at Bible college, like, you know, I was. I was taught it before I went to Bible college, but, you know, it was just reinforced through Bible college with absolutely no idea about where it came from or the fact that it's only about 160 years old as a theological system. And if you teach dispensationalism and you have never in-depth studied that, then shame on you. You have been teaching something that you yourself never examined, and that is shameful. But the basic tenets of dispensationalism, that is the arbitrary dividing up of Scripture as for the Jews or for the Christians, uh, are easily refuted by considering Christ's own words to the apostles before his ascension. In the Great Commission, he says, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Here, Christ is instructing his disciples to teach those that should be converted after his ascension the very same things that he taught them in his earthly ministry. These are recorded for us in the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the book of Acts, we see the apostles doing just this. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 42. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Well, what was their doctrine? What was the apostles' doctrine? It was whatsoever things Jesus commanded them. Now, what is commonly said by dispensationalists, and again, there is a spectrum of dispensationalism, what is commonly said, at least by the classic dispensationalists, is that the Gospels, or portions of them, are under the law of Moses. And I know there's some of you who have a background dispensationalist, like, that's not what I believe. Well, then you're a progressive dispensationalist, not a classic dispensationalism. You only just cut out things like the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. That's a different topic, though. But, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom, they say, and it's not for us necessarily today. Our forgiveness of sin is not conditional like Christ taught in Matthew 6. That's for the Jews under the law. Well, those that say such things or the like teach that Christ's words or portions of them are not for believers today. But Christ himself contradicted this idea himself um, about when the law ended and when the law began to be pre- be uh, to end in the gospel of the kingdom was being preached. He says in Luke 16, 16, said the law and the prophets were until John, that is John the Baptist, since that time 
the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Christ says that the law was not taught in his earthly ministry, but the gospel of the kingdom was preached. And I know dispensationalism has a way of getting around even that. Again, different conversation. But he identifies the end of the law of Moses as the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. John's ministry is what opens all four Gospels. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3, Mark 1, 1 through 3, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, John chapter 1, verse 19 through 23. It is for this very reason that there is a separation in all Bibles between the books of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, not at the end of the Sermon on the Mount or at the Resurrection or anything like that. That's because all of the Gospels are doctrinally and practically applicable to Christians until the return of Christ. To say something different is really to call Christ a liar. You're making the Word of God of none effect by your tradition, just like the Pharisees did. And you see, let's consider that passage really quickly. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, we'll read, starting verse 6, He answered and said unto them, well hath Isaiah, or Isaiah, prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandments of God, the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say this to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Now what did the Pharisees do? They didn't alter the text of Scripture at all. So how did they make the word of God of none effect? By saying it didn't mean what it said. Oh, you don't have to honor your father or mother. Just, just say it's Corban. You know, just reinterpret what it says in light of what you believe. Keep that in mind as we move through this. Now, the issue in the discussion of once saved, always saved, or eternal security, or really any doctrinal discussion at all, is the issue of truth. What is true? It's not about how we feel, our friends, our family, what a preacher told us once, what we did at an altar, or what we think about it. The question is, what is true? I don't care where God's Word leads me. If it's away from family, away from denominations, away from my church, away from decades of ministry, I don't care. I'm going where it says to go. I want the truth and not what makes me feel comfortable. Since the Bible is the only authority for Christian doctrine and teaching, whatever it says is true. And Christ said as much, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day, John 12, 48. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so, Acts 17, 11. You see, everybody quotes about the Bereans there, Acts 17, 11. But if you try being 
a Berean believer who questions their pastor, preacher, or teacher in, in your church, you will quickly see the exit of that church. Generally, many will just politely tell you that perhaps you should go to the other church up the road, instead of doing exactly what the scriptures say and examine themselves, or just prove their doctrine. God's truth and believers are not afraid of examination. The only thing you're going to find is truth in the Word of God. Therefore, the only people afraid of examination and questioning are those who don't care about the truth. They care about the truth so long as it is agreeable to them. Status quo. William Gurnall stated it well when he said, if you do not seek for truth, then you've already rejected it. Also, consider the Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 13, where it says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Or, as one scholar said, Before you can say, I disagree, you must first be able to say, I understand. If you don't understand what the other person is saying, then what are you disagreeing with? You're disagreeing with difference. Is really all you're doing. Or correction. Now, being a former independent fundamental Baptist and having attended two separate Bible institutions for that denomination, I can tell you from experience that most have no idea what the discussion about once saved, always saved, also called eternal security, is even about. They think it's about convincing someone that they're not saved by works. Wrong. Or that the per well, obviously you're not saved by works. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you, if you think that's what this discussion is about, you're wrong. Or that the person is leaning too much on feelings. Wrong. Some people might do that, but that's not what we're talking about. Or they just don't understand the nature of our position in Christ or his imputed righteousness. Wrong. The average once saved, always saved teacher or believer simply has never done much studying outside their circle of influence. And if you only listen to people that you agree with, then you will never be corrected if indeed you are wrong. You're in an echo chamber, and all you're going to hear is your own voice and beliefs. It's confirmational bias or cognitive dissonance. Now, the word truth means that which corresponds to reality, that which is. The Bible is the Word of God, and it is infallible. It, is, it tells you what is reality. Now, whatsoever the Bible says is true. Therefore, Every statement in it is true to each of us individually. All are accountable to the same standard. There's no loopholes. Now, regarding doctrine, if it is not plainly stated in the Bible, it is by definition unbiblical. And also, if something is said plainly in the Bible, then it must be true. Now, I want to give you an analogy. If I was to tell you that I had a ball... And I asked you what color it was. See, so imagine I'm holding a ball and I ask you, what color is it? White or black? What would you say? Now, if you presumed or assumed that I gave you the only possible options, you're wrong. What if it was red? Just because I framed the question that way. Even if I think those are the only two possible options and I just don't know anything else, and I ask you that question, it's still wrong. Sincerity doesn't mean anything. If you're wrong, you're wrong. What if it was red? Most people approach their beliefs this way. 
They base their choice on themselves or what is presented to them. Most people learn doctrine before they have ever even read the Bible once for themselves. They are told a few basic ideas, shown a few quote-unquote proof texts, which is the very worst way of studying doctrine. And that maybe they're shown some proof texts. Some people are just told what to believe. And then they choose to believe the person who told them those things, I don't care if it's a pastor, before examining the Bible for themselves. This is foolish when you consider that your eternal soul hangs in the balance. How do you know if this person knows what they're doing? And oftentimes we just, well, they know a lot more than me because they've been in this a lot longer than I have. I have seen people indoctrinated into certain beliefs that are wrong the very second that they were led to the Lord. In the same conversation, and now that person is inoculated, they will never question that belief because it is so closely associated with the gospel to them. Now, how is it that you can make an assumption about what is biblical before you have any knowledge of the Bible yourself? Now, this is easily illustrated in relation to our topic with the following question. When people say, well, do you believe in eternal security, or do you believe you save yourself? That's a very common question that people give me. You know, I used to ask it to people too. But it commits multiple fallacies. So a fallacy is an error in reasoning. One, it assumes that there's only two mutually exclusive possibilities, much like our what color is the ball analogy. The assumption being that that eternal security is true, and that understanding of salvation is true, or that someone believes they saved themselves, or they are saved by works, or that they're kept by works, you know, all of those being false. And now to frame the question that way really just is a declaration of ignorance. This is actually the fallacy of bifurcation. It sets up a false either-or decision by giving you only two options that are falsely presented as the only two possible ones. The very argument begs the question also, which is another fallacy. The argument itself assumes the conclusion in its premises. Now, it also commits an error called a straw man fallacy. This fallacy redefines an opposing viewpoint and then attacks that false definition of it. The fact of the matter is that just because someone does not hold to eternal security, it doesn't mean that they save themselves or believe that they save themselves. That's just incorrect. And if you think that, then it shows you really don't know what you're talking about. Now, to frame the issue this way shows that the person who makes it who has made these this error in thinking, has never themselves even studied opposing viewpoints at all. They are disagreeing with something they don't even understand. They're merely repeating what someone else, who didn't study either, told them. And I say that from experience as somebody who did that. The plain truth of the matter is this. Do you want the truth? What God says in his word, whatever that is, Or do you want what is going to make you comfortable? Now, I believe the truth of God's Word always leads to comfort, but in God's way. When you rest in what God says. Or do you want what takes away your guilty conscience? 
or what allows you to live the rest of your life in peace and tranquility according to your definition, or what allows you to be accepted by all the quote-unquote church people. I have offended a lot of church people by sticking to the scriptures, and I believe any biblically-minded person will offend a lot of church people. I'm not against correction at all. You have to keep a humble attitude, and you have to be respectful when you discuss things with people, especially if they are a pastor, they do hold a position of authority over that congregation, in a sense. We can get into the issue of auto-episcopacy another day. But I've been called a false teacher when someone couldn't prove me wrong scripturally. I've been called a false prophet, even though I have never once prophesied or even claimed to. I've been called a cult leader, and I would like to know where all my minions are if that were true. And I've been threatened with the police by an insecure pastor clinging to his little kingdom when I just tried to discuss biblical things with him. And always remember, I'm talking, I'm, when you even are respectful with people, in all honesty, church people are some of the most hostile people to the Bible that I meet. Now, do you want the truth? If you say yes, then everything is on the table to be examined. Everything. The deity of Christ, salvation, the Trinity, etc. Everything. There is no corner of your belief or life that is not open to examination and scrutiny from the Word of God. If that startles you, I must ask why. Why are you afraid, and what are you afraid you're going to find in God's Word? Consider what Christ said, John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved or corrected or exposed. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God." There are those who want the truth, and they look for it in order to conform themselves to it. And then there are those who want something else. Comfort, acceptance, the ability to do their own thing and live their own life without anyone telling them what to do. A Christian who is one who does the truth continually examines everything by the light of God's Word so that they may conform themselves to it. If that's not you, then according to Jesus, it's because your deeds are evil. You are afraid of what the light is going to expose or require of you. I can't tell you how many times when having this discussion with the person who has been to church or even Bible college, and after an hour or so of going through the scriptures, that is them really just arguing with me when I'm trying to do something else usually, and they tell me whenever they can't, they, they've exhausted all their arguments, they've been answered, I've walked through the scriptures showing them they're wrong, and they tell me they're afraid of what the Bible says. Now, what does that reaction say about how you are living your life? If I'm ever shown from the Scriptures that I'm wrong about once saved, always saved, or eternal security, I'll be the first to admit it. I'll stand up. I'll give testimonies about it. But you know what? The way that I live my life doesn't have to change. I'm following Christ. I don't have skeletons in my closet. I'm not scared of this because my hope is not based on this doctrine. It's not some safety net that I'm leaning back on. Christ is the only thing that I'm trusting in. 
I'm not walking on eggshells in terror of losing my salvation, quote-unquote, like people falsely claim from ignorance. I have assurance. I know where I'm going, and eternal security is a dangerous false doctrine. The two are not connected. You don't have to believe in eternal security in order to have assurance of salvation. In fact, actually, you undo one in order to believe the other, which we'll talk about later. Now, how can I say that? Well, let's get into it. I want to start with an illustration again. This is a scriptural one, because you need to understand this. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I did this with a youth group one time, and they all failed miserably. Here's an exercise. What does this verse say? Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What does that verse say? Now, if you answered anything other than, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, then you are incorrect. It's not a trick question. It says what it says. If you said anything else, you're confusing interpretation with what it says. We are told so many things about what a verse means that it's hard to keep it straight sometimes, if that's all that you're focusing on. Start with what it says. Remember, though, meaning is never contrary to what a verse plainly says. If it is, then you're not teaching from the Bible. You're teaching from your own beliefs. You are preaching your interpretation. There is only one correct interpretation of Scripture, and that's the one the author intended. I know that there is symbolic language, and that there's hyperbole, and synecdoche, and all these normal functions of language. They're normal. They're not mystical code that can make something completely the opposite of grammar or context. That's not how that works. If you were to read a letter written from one person to another, it would generally not be confusing as to what was communicated. But when it says Holy Bible across the top, somehow we get confused. When the Bible says, don't do this, don't do that. If you do this, I will do that. It is not deep allegory. It means exactly what it says. Don't ask yourself necessarily, what does this verse mean? Ask yourself first, what does this verse say? Look at the context. Who is it to? What time are they writing? Is there something cultural being appealed to that enlightens the passage? These are basic questions that you need to ask. But don't for a second think that any of those things is going to change a thou shalt not into a, well, maybe on Tuesdays. And so let's, let's just start to talk about the first things first. After, I guess, that other part that was first. Let's talk about the gospel to show you that I'm not a heretic preaching a works salvation. Paul put it very succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 6. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you... First of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Now, in this is very simply the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and you are saved if you keep in memory that truth. Notice that Paul mentions in the middle of him talking about the gospel, the need for continued to believe. He said, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, you're saved. You stand in this, right? Do you know that some people have the audacity to teach or preach that there are unbelieving believers or unrighteous, righteous people or wicked saints? Don't worry, we'll get, we'll get to that. Some say that there are different gospels for different times. Dispensationalism. I've literally sat in a class at an independent fundamental Baptist church and was told with a full slide presentation that there were multiple gospels depending on who the audience is and what the dispensation is. So much for Paul's warning about another gospel in Galatians 1. I guess he was uninformed regarding doctrine. According to Ryrie, that's Charles Ryrie, and Schofield and Larkin, those sorry apostles didn't have the understanding that we have today. But Christ's own words, again, contradict this belief. In Matthew 24, 3, Christ said, and, it says, as, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? You go down to verses 13 and 14. Christ says, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. That is the end of the world. So Christ very clearly, when asked about his return and the end of the world, gives certain signs to look for in the earth, Matthew 24, 4 through 12, and then tells them that the gospel of the kingdom, that same gospel that was proclaimed in his earthly ministry, was to be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end of the world and his return would occur. Since Christ has not returned and the world is still here, it is the same gospel as is presented in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that is to be presented today. There are not different gospels. Some people will even try to say that there's different gospels so that they don't have to teach repentance. But notice again in the middle of the statement, Christ emphasizes the need for endurance to the end. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. Now some silly try to say that this is meaning bodily salvation. That is escaping death during the tribulation, right? It just, it's just saying that, you know, well, if you, you know, live and you survive the tribulation, then you endure to the end. That's what it's talking about. But not only does this not fit the context of the passage, it also did not exist as an interpretation of that verse for over a thousand years after the ascension of Christ. Every single time this verse was quoted by early Christians, it was referencing the need for continual belief unto one's death in order to be saved from being lost in the end. And if you think that he that endureth to the end shall be saved means he who physically survives the tribulation will be saved in the end, then you literally just said he who physically survives the tribulation will physically survive the tribulation. Think about it. Now, what is the command of the gospel? People forget the gospel is a commandment. And when I mean 
the command of the gospel? I mean, how were people to respond to it? How was the gospel presented unto people, and how were they to take hold of its promises for themselves? Well, let's look at some scriptures. Matthew 3, 1 through 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, Matthew saying kingdom of heaven is circumlocution that the Jews did. It's literally synonymous with the kingdom of God when he cross-referenced the verses. Matthew, just because he has a Jewish audience, uses circumlocution like uh, the Jews usually did, saying heaven instead of God as a means of referencing. The same way that they say Lord instead of, you know, Yahweh, instead of Jehovah, and, you know, they say Lord or Adonai or Elohim. It's literally the same thing. There's not a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. If you just cross-reference all the verses and look at the parallel passages, I have to say that because I'm dealing with dispensationalists, probably. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 38. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts seventeen thirty and 31. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which in the which he would judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And Acts chapter twenty six, verse fifteen through twenty. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance." And there's other verses that we can use, but we see here that repentance means a change in how you live, and it's the command of the gospel. Our works, or what we do, has to change. Otherwise, according to the scriptures, you are not a partaker of the gospel of Christ. This is repentance. We turn from wickedness and sin to God and righteousness. And we'll elaborate on this further, but let's continue for a little bit. This this necessity of repentance is reinforced by what John the Baptist tells people when instructing them about repentance. He says, Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, he says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. And the Greek word for fruits here is the same word for results. It's uh, the results of repentance, the fruits of repentance. It's the Greek word karpos. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now John likened men unto trees that bring forth fruit. A bad man brings forth bad fruit, and a good man brings forth good fruit. The fruit is seen in the context as our works. And this is also taught by Christ himself. 
Later on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 23, he says, Beware false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Think about that. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Christ plainly says that only those who do the will of the Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say that many are deceived about whether or not they truly know him. He says, many will say to me in that day. Now, some try to say, well, that's talking about false prophets. Well, why do you think we can identify false prophets by their works in the first place? It's because we can identify believers, those that have the Holy Spirit of God in them, by their works. If we can't identify false prophets by their works, it's because we can't identify Christians either, but that's what people want to be able to say. Nevertheless, the scriptures, the text says we can identify prophets by their works. Really, and as we'll see, it's because you can identify believers by their works. Now, how is it that our works can be so emphasized by Christ and his disciples as a condition of entering heaven when we're saved by grace through faith? Because we are, we are saved by grace through faith. We're not kept by works. Works don't keep us. It's not because he's speaking under the law. It's actually very simple. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 through 26 kind of helps to give this the, just a brief little statement that puts it in perspective. Paul says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest... And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known unto all nations, for the obedience of faith. It is here said that there is the obedience of faith. Faith is what enables a person to truly obey God, because faith is what connects you to God, so that His grace may come in and work in your life to produce the results of faith. Good works. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 tells us that believers are saved unto good works and that it was foreordained that they should walk in them, not piddle about as spiritual children forever. They grow up into him in all things, we are told in another place. That is salvation. It's not just reckoned or imputed with no visible sign of anything happening. It's actually accomplished in them. When a person is presented with the gospel correctly, they are told to repent and put away sin in their lives. It is by their faith in Christ that they are able to change their works, or rather the grace of God working in them works this change in them. This is repentance. They turn to God from sin. If they don't turn from sin, then they didn't turn 
to God. Let's talk about faith. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you scroll down through Hebrews 11, just look down through the chapter at the first words of most of the descriptions of these people. It's called the Hall of Faith, right? These examples of biblical saving faith, right? We see throughout the chapter that it is by or through faith that all these men and people did things. And you look down at, uh, starting verse 33, down at the end of the chapter, it says, "...who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, turned to the flight of the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others had trial of, of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That is all by faith. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. It is through faith that men obey God, because faith is submission to God's authority according to his standards, in his way, in his time, for his purpose. Faith is yielding to God. It's not a, a work like Calvinists try to say. Read Romans chapter 4 where it sets the two in opposition. If it's by faith, then it's not by works. Right? Faith is yielding to God, but it is something you are actively doing as a believer. You are called a believer. You believe God. It is choosing to believe God's word over all other things and putting all your eggs in one basket. A Christian does not hedge their bets. They don't ride the fence between the world and Christ. They follow him and their lives testify to that fact. Now, how are we kept or preserved? Because God does preserve his children. That's, I don't have a problem saying that. God does preserve his children. Well, how does he preserve them? Conditionally. On what condition? You know it already. We're shown that we are kept by the power of God, absolutely, through faith. Second, uh, 1 Peter 1.5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Believers are kept by God's power. But believers meet the condition of faith through or by or conditional words indicating the means or instrument of how something happens. It's literally, if you look up the, the preposition there, it it's literally talks about the instrumentality of the word. We, as believers, are kept by God's power through or by means of our faith in him. That's the gospel. Let's take it further. Faith itself is said to be seen by others in what you do in the Scriptures. How many of you notice that? Consider the story of the paralytic man brought to Christ in Mark chapter 2, verse 2 through 5. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch as 
insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them, and they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. So the men who brought the paralytic man to Christ acted upon their belief that he was able to heal him. This showed their faith outwardly, that they came to him. The result, upon seeing their works, was that Christ forgave the man's sins. He also healed him. Our works show outwardly that we do have faith in Christ. They are the outward evidence that there is saving faith. Why do you think that Christ said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If he was your Lord, you would be doing what he says. This is what the Apostle James taught in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. I really don't understand why people get confused with this passage. There is no, there is no contradiction. It doesn't even edge near contradiction. Uh, James says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And it's actually something specific in the Greek there. Um, if a brother or sister be naked, the destitute of daily food... And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect or complete or mature? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. After he just believed and walked away? No, after he did what God said his faith was reckoned unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Some try to say that James is only saying that our works outwardly show our faith unto men. Well, that's true. But James emphasizes that faith, if it does not have works, is not saving faith at all. It's dead. Actually, the whole point of James's passage is not contrasting faith and works. It's contrasting a faith that's just this, oh, I believe, you know, and you don't actually do anything. It's a dead faith versus a faith that actually produces action. That is what is being contrasted. Read through the passage and tell me that's not true. The Greek tells you that's very specific because whenever it says, you know, can faith save him? Actually, the Greek is emphasizing saying, can that kind of faith save him? Dead faith doesn't save you. That's exactly the point. James says that the body without the spirit is dead. And it's the same way with faith. If your faith is not shown in your works, then you're dead spiritually. You're not trusting in Christ. You're like the son who told his father, I go, and yet you don't go. Christ said that's not repentance. 
And if it's not repentance, then it's not responding to the gospel accordingly. This is the connection between repentance and faith. They're two sides of the same coin. If a man truly repents, then he is turning from sin unto God. If he has truly turned to follow Christ as his salvation, then he obeys God's commandments. If the man does not obey Christ's commandments, then he doesn't have faith in God. Consider Christ's own words. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John eight twelve. Christ says that if someone follows him, which is the definition of a Christian, then they do not walk in darkness. As a re- the result, he says, is that they have the light of life. So what does that mean if you walk in darkness? It means you're not following him, and you don't have the light of life. You don't belong to him. This ties directly to assurance of salvation. You don't have to believe in eternal security to have assurance of salvation. If you think that, then you don't understand either idea correctly. Eternal security, or once saved, always saved, is the belief that you will be saved forever because you were converted at all. It has to do with your future, not your present. Assurance of salvation is the belief that you presently are in him and partaking of his life. One is biblical, the other is not. So how do we know that we are saved, talking about assurance of salvation? Well, the first, the book of 1 John was written for a very specific reason. John says, in 1 John 5.13, he says, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. You see, there was this thing called Gnosticism, this incipient Gnosticism that was rising in the first century, in the first, second half of the century, pretty much overthrew the entire church of Ephesus later on. And we even know outside of the scriptures from what John told his disciple Polycarp, and Polycarp told Irenaeus that John specifically said he was addressing things pertaining to these Gnostics that would come into the congregation saying that they were Christians and they would overthrow whole congregations. It was the single greatest threat to Christianity, really, in the first hundreds of years of Christianity until maybe, you know, Catholicism. And you know what the—oh, by the way, you know what the Gnostics said? They, they taught eternal security. Just, just letting you know. But you know what he says? He says that she, these things are written unto you. These things that he has written in this epistle in 1 John 5. He says these are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So with people teaching all sorts of things, you know, about assurance of salvation, how to know. Some people say you got to pray in tongues. Well, that's false. Some people will say, you know, well, this has to happen. That has to happen. Well, What are the standards to know that we have eternal life? Well, John specifically tells us how to know. But first, we have to answer the question, what exactly is eternal life? And you'd be surprised how many people can't answer that correctly. Some people talk about eternal life as though it is a physical thing that can be handed from God to a person. Like you can just walk away from God with it, you know, in your hands. That's not what the Bible says. In John eleven twenty five, 
talking about, and um, Christ is at the you know the passage of uh, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said unto her, "I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live." John seventeen three, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John fourteen six, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John fourteen nineteen. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. First John five twelve, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. First John five twenty, and we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So eternal life is Jesus Christ himself. Think about John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, you abide in me. Guess what? You have life. We must know him and be in him and believe in him is what he says. Remember, it is the obedience of faith, Romans 16, 26. It is by our faith in him that we are united to him and are partakers of his life. It is his life. Let's now look at John's statements that he says in 1 John. And remember, he says he wrote these things to let you know whether or not you have eternal life. We're talking about assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And here we see very clearly that if someone says they are in fellowship with God, that means are saved, and they do not obey him, walk in darkness. Remember John eight twelve. if you follow him, you're not walking in darkness that God says that man is a liar. If you say you're in fellowship with God at all, and you're not obeying him, Jesus and John the Apostle call you a liar. That man's not saved. Conversely, we see that if we walk in the light and are obeying God's commands, then we have fellowship with him. The result is that we are cleansed from all sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not in the sense that you walking your works earn it, but you're abiding in the light. You know, abide in me, he says. Now, some people trying to say that fellowship is different than salvation. One, that's not in the Bible at all. It's something they repeat because someone else said it to them first. You did not hear that or come to that conclusion by reading the Bible yourself. You did not believe that in a vacuum. Someone told that to you. And you got to be honest with yourself. Two, what they're trying to say then is that Light can have fellowship with darkness. You know, like Paul said, doesn't happen. So either you're going to call Paul a liar or Jesus a liar. Take your pick. I'm going next passage through 1 John, and we're talking about the things that John says he wrote to talk to you about assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, he says, And hereby we do know that we know him. 
if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, who's the truth? Oh, that's right, Jesus. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So here's our question again. What does the text say? It says we can know that we are in him. Talking about, the, obviously, interpretation. We're just talking about what it says in interpreting it. It says we can know that we are in him and know him, eternal life, remember, 1 John 5, 20, uh, John 17, 3. If, big if right there, isn't it? Notice all these conditional words coming up when we're talking about salvation, isn't it? If we keep his commandments. If is a conditional word. You knowing, or we're talking about having assurance, that you know him, notice the present tense, is conditioned on you keeping his commandments. That's what the text says. It's not based on a moment of decision sometime in the past, even if it was true and sincere. I don't care if you made a decision to believe Jesus sometime in the past. Do you believe him now? Do you follow him now? You have no assurance about where you are today on the basis of something you did 10, 20 years ago. That's absolutely unbiblical. 1 John 2, 9. He that saith he is in the light, remember, fellowship with God, walking in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. So if someone hates someone, then they're not in the light. Remember, what's the second greatest commandment? We see this even clarified in another verse. So if somebody was to say, well, how do I know that I love them? Right? According to God's standards. Well, what do you know? 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this, we know that we love the children of God. Sometimes I really just think that God writes these things anticipating people's arguments. I really think that. He says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. First is first John 5, 2 and 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, who can abide in that sort of state? Remember, this is Jesus. Jesus can abide completely. And who's the one who's supposed to be in you, leading you? You're going to be conforming yourself from the inside out to him. He says his commandments are not grievous. This is not an impossible standard. And even if it is, it's impossible for you to do in your flesh. It is absolutely possible for Jesus to do in and through you. That's called salvation. Now, John tells us that we know that we love people, specifically in the context of the children of God, when we are obeying God's commandments. He goes on to say that to love God is to keep his commandments. So if you don't obey him, then you don't love him. Consider that when remembering what James said, James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, tested, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. 
And some people think that those crowns are optional things. No, 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 not if you actually study them without that sermon that you heard somewhere in the back of your mind. The Greek is actually very specific that the crown is the life that is promised. It means shall receive the crown which is life. The article is augmenting the object there. To those that love him, is what he says. And those that love him, obey him. It's perfectly consistent throughout the New Testament, isn't it? Now, this is what Christ himself said to the disciples in the Gospels about love and obedience and his relationship to them being based on those things. John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And if that's not enough, he, said, he clarifies it two verses later. He says, John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. But notice what the result is. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. In both of these verses, John 14, 21, John 14, 23, Christ makes his coming to live in the believer conditioned upon their obedience to his words. Mm-hmm. And that is consistent with the sealing of God of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4, which, by the way, are Ephesians 4 is a warning if you read it in context. Now, let's look at some other, uh, John 15, 8 real quick, where something similar is said. John 15, 8 through 10. And this is, again, just a few verses. And remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original text. This is just flowing from 14 into 15, okay? And and if, uh, same night, same, you know, Christ is talking to his disciples, same audience speaker. Christ says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So, or that is in this manner, ye shall be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. You know what that means? That means you can not continue in his love. Isn't that funny? But notice what he says next. If, conditional word, ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Here Christ connects the idea of bearing fruit works meet for salvation, or works meet for repentance, remember, with obeying his commandments. Let's go back to 1 John. 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're told that if a person loves the world's system or embraces it and is in agreement with its ways, that person does not have the love of God in them. They're outside of Christ. And this is confirmed elsewhere by James when he says in James 4, 4, he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I'm sorry, in the kingdom of God, God doesn't have frenemies. I'm sorry. You are an enemy or a follower. There's not both and, it's either or. You cannot have two masters. People need to stop trying to say that you can, which is ultimately what eternal security teaches, that you can have two masters. 1 John 2, 24 through 25. 
Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. If you continue to live by faith in the gospel of Christ, then you will continue to be in Christ. See, the issue is not works. The issue is having a right understanding of the relationship of faith and works and repentance and understanding that all that I'm saying and the biblical uh, view of this is saying is just continue in the same way in which you first came to Christ, which you know is exactly what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That is all that I'm saying. The promise being that you will have eternal life. When? It's promised to you. While we are partakers of that life now by our union with Christ through the obedience of faith while we live, eternal life is not truly sealed in us until we endure to the end, as we read in Matthew 24, 13. And here is a verse to state that more plainly in case you think that I'm twisting something. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 30. Pay attention to this. I've never heard a sermon on this. And Jesus answered, at least on this aspect of the passage, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's, but he shall receive an hundredfold now, and this time houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. See, some people try to say, well, that's just talking about the resurrection. Really? What, what does the text say? It says eternal life. Don't allow somebody's loophole be the red flag that comes up when you see something that contradicts your teaching. We see that eternal life in this passage in Mark 10, 29, 30 is truly received by us in the world to come in that sense that it becomes ours, right? Not just we're partaking of the divine nature now. We see that eternal life is truly received by us in the world to come. That's literally what the text says. And this is also shown by another passage in a different sense, but it does show it. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There is no context in which this makes sense in eternal security. If because of a decision you made sometime in the past or at all, you reap life everlasting. And we also know that it's not meaning you earn anything. That's just not what it says. If we live after the flesh, our carnal and worldly desires, then we will reap corruption, cause, effect. But if we sow unto the Spirit, that is, obey God through the Spirit, through the deeds you know, through the Spirit, we mortify the deeds of the body. Then we will reap life everlasting. Paul said that you reap life everlasting. If you reap life everlasting, that means you are waiting for it. Right? None of this contradicts saved by grace through faith 
when you remember, which is why we have to go over so much of it beforehand, that we can only obey God by trusting in Christ and following Him. It is by th- it is through faith in Christ that we are enabled to obey God. So that at the end of everything, just like it says in Luke, doesn't matter all that you've done, doesn't matter all that you've done, it has always been by faith in Christ. So that at the end of your time period, you are just going to say, we're unprofitable servants. And at the end, you are still giving all credit and praise to God, even though your will is involved. Now, here's one really important passage in 1 John. Remember, we're still going through 1 John where he talks about assurance of salvation, right? By his own words. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whatsoever is born of God doth not commit sin. What he's talking, remember, in the Greek and everything, he's talking about in the continual aspect. It's a present active indicative in a lot of this. It's not talking about a single, you know, thing that you do, you know, that kind of thing. And then most teachers know that. For his seed, that is, believers, remain in him. And he cannot sin, in the sense of practicing, context, because he is, notice the present tense, present tense, born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother, which First John 5, 2 and 3, remember, is somebody who does not keep the commandments of God, right? Again, notice that deception is warned about here. Think of that. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't live after the flesh and reap life everlasting, is what it says. 1 John 3, 7, right? Little children, no one deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Who is it that tries to tell you that God sees even unrepentant sinners as righteous? I want you to think about that. That's what's being warned about here. Somebody is trying to say somebody who is not practicing righteousness is considered righteous by God. I have heard a pastor defend that statement. Multiple people. They're calling John a liar. We know that a converted person who walks in the light by following Jesus, just like he said, is righteous. But not on their own account, right? That's because of Jesus, right? But a person, any person who is unrepentant, I don't care if they made a decision sometime in an altar, and I don't care if it was real. Any person who is unrepentant, that is, they refuse to repent of sin, they are not righteous. Not in God's sight. That is what this passage says. They are not practicing righteousness. You cannot practice righteousness and not live righteously. Some people try to say as long as they repented sometime in the past, right, the future sins being forgiven idea, right, which we'll talk about at another time, probably the next episode, then they say that person who is living unrepentant in the present is still considered righteous by God. The Bible says here that that person is deceiving people. That's a false teacher. 
It says that the children of God are manifest. That's literally saying obvious. I don't know why everybody tries to say, well, I do know why. I just don't understand how people can look at this verse and say, well, nobody really knows who the true Christians are. Or whenever it gets down to brass tacks and you back them in the corner about certain things, we're saying, well, you know, you said that Christians have a changed life. That's right. Well, what you said this person fell away, but they were converted at one time and they're still saved. That's right. There's a disconnect here. You need to look at it straight in the face. That's called a contradiction. But the Bible says that anybody who says that those who practice right, who do not live righteously, are righteous, even in the Old Testament, the prophets were saying that, the false prophets, causing this people to, to trust in a lie, is what it says. The Bible says here that person is deceiving people. It says the children of God are manifest. They are plainly able to be seen by all because they do practice righteous. They're practicing. It is the general tone of their life. Yes, there is growth in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, but it's growing in godliness. It's not, you know, faltering about and not doing anything. Whosoever does not obey God does not belong to him. That's not my opinion. That's what the text says. And again, guess one more. First John 5, 4 through 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. It does not say a decision of faith sometime in the past. It means your faith now, presently. So who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? First John 2, where it says, you know, if that abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning, you shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Continue walking by faith in Jesus Christ, which, remember, is not separate from obeying him. Those that live by faith in Christ overcome the world. They are not bound by its ways. They obey God. They do not walk after the flesh and its carnal desires. They overcome them, and it is all done by believing on Christ. What then is the, does it mean when that is not being done in them? Righteousness. Let's talk about righteousness now. Here is a very common passage that most people know. Romans 10, 9, and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So with the heart man believes unto righteousness. And what is it that we just read from John? First John 3, 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Or in First John 3, 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Whoever says that we don't know who the real Christians are is deceived or lying. And I have met people who I think honestly just are lying. They're making the word of God of none effect by their tradition, i.e. the interpretation that was given to them by somebody else because they did not get that from the Bible. They got it from a class, a sermon, someone, usually not long after they became a Christian. And when we put it together, if you believe the gospel from your heart, then you are obeying God. And your life 
is generally one of righteousness. If you do not live a righteous life, then you do not belong to God. You do not truly believe in your heart on Christ. There's a lot of people who believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. They just aren't following him. That's the same kind of faith as devils, which is why James made that distinction. It even says in the gospel that some of the religious leaders believed on him, only they would not confess him. They would not follow after him, humble to go. They would not bring themselves into agreement with him. Why? Because they feared other things. Do you think those people are saved? The gospels made clear they weren't. What if someone stops believing on Christ or stops obeying him? Well, if you've been following, you know the answer, though you may not like it. To be perfectly consistent with the New Testament, you know that it's conditioned. Because just because they stop obeying Christ, it does not mean that somebody's saying they're saved by works. It means it shows they've removed their faith from Christ. They've turned back. Let's just look at some scriptures and see how many times forgiveness and salvation are said to be conditional. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men the trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Try to reconcile that with some people saying, well, all your future sins are already forgiven. That's not what Jesus says. He says, but if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will Notice the future tense. Your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 18, verses 34 and 35. And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Matthew five thirteen, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor... Wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. And yeah, there is an if there. If, you pay attention. if the salt is lost its savor, what will happen to it? Here's a, an obvious one. John 15, 1 through 6. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, or continue, remain, the Greek word meno, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. So the context is the branches of the disciples. He says that. They're not some other group of people. They're not some people who were never disciples in the first place. They are the disciples. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, or apart from me, severed from me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. No honest teacher can go through this and deny what it plainly says. Chuck Swindoll's commentary on this, he literally just changes it. Literally, in the middle of a sentence, he just changes it. John Phillips' commentary does the same thing, plays around with the pronouns to try and say that, well, now it's talking about a different group of people. No, it's not. That's not honest exegesis. That's you clinging to your bias. 
You can't be broken off of something you were never part of. And it's like somebody saying, you fell off the horse. You were never on the horse to begin with. That's exactly the same kind of exegesis. I don't care how many ways you try to get around it. John 15, 14. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So, if you don't do what he commands you, you're not his friend. Romans 8, 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. People say, oh, well, it's just saying you're going to die early. That's right. God's going to reward your wickedness by sending you to heaven early. That's just a wonderful message to preach. Honestly, when people say, oh, God's just going to kill you early, you know, just turn you over to the destruction of the flesh of the Spirit, maybe say in the day of Christ, and people try to interpret that to say, well, that just means God's going to kill you early as a means of discipline. Really? Sounds like bad parenting to me to reward the wicked child. Don't you think? Consider this. He's contrasting physical death with physical life. No, 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 no. Look what it says. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Romans 8.13 is what we're looking at. Well, that's true of everyone. Even the righteous physically die. That can't be what it's saying. It's emphasizing spiritual death. If you live after the flesh, you will die spiritually. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live spiritually. Otherwise, you're making it say a contradiction. You cannot have it be talking about physical death as a result of anything, or physical life, because both the, the wicked die physically and they live physically. Both the righteous die physically and they die well, they don't die spiritually, but you know what I mean. They live spiritually. That's what I meant. You can't interpret the way that you want to to teach eternal security. You cause it to contradict itself and make it nonsense. Romans eleven twenty one through 23, people say, oh, this is talking about Israel. That's right. And guess what? Who's grafted into Israel? Us Gentiles. Pay attention to the context. Just because a Jew is mentioned somewhere in the room in the passage does not mean it's not talking about Christians. It says, Romans 11, 21-23, For if God spared not the natural branches, talking about the Jews and the nation of Israel physically, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Who's he talking to? Lost people? No. Christians. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity. But toward thee, goodness... If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Cut off from what? In what sense? Context is just like the unbelieving Jews who refused to believe on Jesus were separated, cut off from the body of God's people. That means if you don't continue in his goodness, you will be cut off from God's body of people. And it even says, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, that is, if those Jews who did not believe in Christ, if they did not continue in that state, they'll be grafted in. They'll be able to join in again. For God is able to graft them in again. See, some people have this false notion from a bad interpretation of Hebrews to say, well, if you believe you can lose your salvation, you can never come back. No, you just don't know the tense of the verbs in that, in that passage. Stop repeating what other people have told you. It says right here, you can be broken off 
and be grafted in again. Under what condition? Repentance. If you convert a tell, if you convert a sinner from the error of his ways, know that you are saving his soul from death. What do you think the passage was meaning? First Corinthians fifteen two, by which also context is the gospel. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. And notice he says that to Christians, people who have already believed the gospel. Some people try to interpret those in vain passages passages to say, well, it's just wasted labor on people who never came to Christ. No, it's not. He's talking to Christians who have already believed the gospel. He's saying you have to keep their gospel in memory, just like John said in First John chapter 2 about how to abide if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Galatians 5, 1 through 2. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. How did Christ make us free? That's right, from law and works and the penalty of law and works, which was death. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's talking about the law, Moses. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, and the implication in the context is that they believing that they had to be justified by the law. And he, remember, he's talking to people he led to Christ. He says, if, you, if you're just being convinced of that again, read Galatians chapter 1, they were Christians, and he's questioning where they are now. He says, if you be circumcised, if you get changed into believing that now you are going to be justified by works of the law, he says, Christ shall profit you nothing. In Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And again, the same problems with Romans eight thirteen about contrasting physical life and physical death and those sorts of things come up here. Well, the wicked physically live and the w- wicked physically die. The spiritual, the Christians, they physically live and they physically die. It can't be contrasting physical and spiritual in that way. That's literally not the definition of a contrast. Philippians 3.11 If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And you read in Philippians, you read in the places where Paul himself acknowledged that if he did not keep under his body, he himself should could be a castaway. Greek word adakamos. It's the same word for reprobate. If it's possible for Paul to be made into a reprobate, and he by his own words, then it's possible for you too. And you see, you never watch and are vigilant for things that you don't think are possible. Colossians one twenty one through twenty three, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. What does the text say? Just read it, and just say it out loud. Read it out loud and say, what is he saying? 1 Thessalonians 3.8, For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Now I will say, 
there is a possibility that that one is metaphorical, where he's talking about in the sense of joy and rejoicing in the Lord. But nevertheless, the language is very specific, and it is possible of another interpretation. Just have to give that one. So I'm not trying to make something out of something that's not absolute. First Timothy 5, 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. An infidel is an unbeliever. In what context could a believer be worse than an unbeliever? People say, well, he's just acting worse. Even if that were true, he's still in a better state because he's still going to heaven according to eternal security. You literally have no way of reconciling that passage if you hold due eternal security in the myth, or should say lie, of the perpetually carnal Christian because of a false interpretation and bad exegesis of 1 Corinthians 2. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. And yes, Hebrews is for Christians. Jews who were converted to Christ are Christians too, people. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of, the, of reward that is under the Old Covenant, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? And so it's talking about, yeah, if you let these things slip, that is, if you get away from walking by faith in the gospel, you can neglect salvation. Hebrews 3.6, But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hebrews 3.14, For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And again, this is the one that the tense of the verbs makes it very clear. It is not saying that somebody who falls away can never be saved again. It talks about if they, it's in the implication of if they continue in that state of unbelief, is in that, in that state of this sin that they commit, which anybody would understand. It's just the tense of the verb people miss. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Again, study the tense of the verb there on the phrase, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. Study that Greek um, verb tense and you will see what the passage actually is clearly talking about. Hebrews 10, 26, for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Again, verb tense, read it and study it. It's emphasizing continuing to sin, which of course, if you continue to sin, guess what? You're an unrepentant sinner. Uh, Hebrews 10, 38, and this is where I want you to pay attention. If you've got your Bible out, um, King James Version, um, pick it up, look at this verse. Pay attention to the words that are in italics. The words in italics are not in the Greek text. Because what it actually says is, now the just shall live by faith. But if, it doesn't say any man, 
context-wise, the Greek makes very clear, if that man draws back, the one in the context, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Pay attention to those italics. Those are not in the Greek text. Hebrews 12.25 See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, how much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? James 1.26 If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. And people say, well, no man, you know, it says no man can bridle the tongue. That's right, but when you become a Christian, guess what? You're not just a man anymore, are you? God moved in. People try to use that, and they try to make excuse for continuing to have filthy conversation. And say, well, I'm just, no man can bridle the tongue. Well, I thought that you were bridled by Christ. James five nineteen through 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him or turn him back, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So much for future sins being forgiven. Second Peter 2.20 For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now, I want people to pay attention to this very clearly. Their latter end is worse with them than at the beginning. The beginning of what? See, some if you try to say that this person is a converted person who they new Christian, they get saved, they fall away, and they're just living in sin, right? And their latter end is worse than the beginning. How is that worse than at the beginning? They're still going to heaven. According to eternal security. There is no sense of this that makes sense unless you don't hold to eternal security. There is no way you will ever convince me, I think of any rational person, that a supposedly converted person who lives wickedly still gets, and still gets to go to heaven is somehow worse because, you know, God takes them to heaven early. The idea itself is ludicrous. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And I will talk about the next verse, which people try to make completely contradict this verse and several verses in the gospel next time whenever we talk about arguments. Absolutely ridiculous. People trying to say an unbelieving believer. Somebody can deny Christ and still go to heaven. That is just blasphemous. You literally are teaching a lie in the name of Christ in order to do that. Now, having discussed at length the basic terms and ideas that the scriptures set forth about salvation, we'll end this part here. In the next part, we're going to move on to directly addressing the arguments used to support once saved, always saved. They're not hard to refute. They're really not. And notice, I'm not appealing to some philosophy. I'm not appealing to some idea. We're just looking at the scriptures. What does the text say? You talk to a Calvinist, right? And they have to appeal to these ideas. 
decree this, decree that, right? We're not appealing to anything, but we're just looking at the scriptures and putting them together. For a lot of people, though, it is difficult to walk away from this doctrine, this idea of eternal security, once they're always safe, because it's their safety net. You've been taught and believed most of your Christian life, probably, if you're the normal person, that you really have no responsibility before God, and that He doesn't actually expect anything of you. For you, it's almost like that's super irrigation. You're going above and beyond. You don't have to, but you will if you actually have a relationship with God, and you actually want to follow Him, and you believe this doctrine. You, in the back of your mind, when you think about it, you honestly have to be honest with yourself and say, you know that you do not believe that actually obeying Him is necessary. At the best, even the better eternal security teachers who don't wholeheartedly push the perpetually carnal Christian myth have to still admit, when backed into a corner, that they console themselves regarding their own failures or the failures of others, not with repentance and a clear conscience as a result of that repentance, but with the notion that they can never fall away to everlasting destruction. They honestly don't believe it is possible for them to ever go to hell. Making God, making God a liar, by the way, because he is. He said he is. Nobody loses their salvation. That's a straw man argument itself. It's not a set of car keys that you misplaced. They forfeit it. They shipwreck it. They walk away from the one who is their life, Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, it says. Many times, by slow, gradual degrees, they give up their vigilance, their sharpness, their commitment to holiness in their thought life and practice. They end up being a castaway, just like Paul warned about. They stopped following Jesus at some point. They probably didn't even notice. They took their eyes off him, whether intentionally or unintentionally, it makes no difference. Now, after attending two separate Bible institutions and preaching and teaching this false doctrine, I was devastated and I was humiliated when I just looked at the Scriptures and I saw that I put words in God's mouth that He never said or intended. And I can only imagine how difficult it is for these teachers and pastors who have taught for 10, 20, 30 years to be honest and ask the question, what does the text say? They have a vested interest and a lot of spiritual opposition to being corrected. They will most likely lose their whole ministry if they yield to this correction. Robert Schenck did. He was a professor at a Baptist university, and he published a book called Life in the Sun on the issue. And they politely asked him to leave. You have to care more about God's Word than your ministry, your family, your friends' opinions, or your reputation, because I guarantee you, you give up and you t- you take touch the ark of eternal security. Find out who your friends are. Trust me, I've had to, I learned the hard way. Stick around for the next part where we deep dive into those arguments. You may be surprised how much more consistent the scriptures are when you get the false doctrine out of the way.